Good morning. It is seven weeks from today until Christmas Day. Really? The people who get all the gifts were excited. The people who have to buy all the gifts just groaned and said, now I need a message of hope from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, man, this year is just flying by. But now that we are past Halloween, I just need to say something this morning in, in way of introduction. Uh, I just got to admit something. I find it absolutely baffling that people choose to flock to these terrifying haunted houses and they pay money to be scared. That's just weird to me. I don't get it. Scary movies? That's weird. Like, if you watch the trailer, and the trailer was terrifying, and then you bought the movie, or bought the ticket to go to the movie for the three of us that still do that post-COVID. It's just weird. So, like, with Halloween, like, cute costumes and delicious treats. That's great. Losing years off of my life through willful terror. That's just weird to me. Speaking of treats, here's something else that's weird to me. People who actually prefer vegetables. I have a question. For those of you who love broccoli, I just have a question. Have you ever had a Reese's peanut butter cup? I just like squash. Have you had chocolate peanut butter pie ever in your life? That's weird to me. It's just weird. It's just weird to me that you would fire a great coach in Kevin Sumlin just to pay $95 million to Jimbo Fisher. If <laughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's for the people who do. <laughs> you know what's weird to me is when I take a friend to a great, I mean like great steakhouse and they order fish. It's just weird to me. Like unless you've got like a meat allergy, like that's the only excusable reason. It's weird. Here's what else is weird to me. It's just weird when Neil Childs is nice. <laughs> you know, like when he's like, hey, man. I'm like, are you sick? Am I sick? Do you know something? Why are you so giddy? What's wrong? It's just weird, right? I also think it's weird on Halloween day when people text me a picture like this. It's just weird. Complete with the 817 on the shirt and the cup of coffee. So some of you have asked... Um, Blake Baxter used to be on staff here. Uh, we partner with his marketing company. Now he does our video editing. And so some of you ask, how much contact do you have with Blake? And it's frequent, but this is usually what it is. He actually photoshopped my head onto Nikki's face. That, that's not cool, man. That's just weird. Whoever said imitation is the highest form of flattery has never seen that picture it's just weird. Here's why that's important. Throughout our journey in the book of Acts, we've encountered some stories that are kind of weird. As a matter of fact, I said last winter, uh, we were in Acts chapter number five, and I told you when we encounter a weird story, it's really important that we slow down and ask ourselves what the weirdness is all about. What I said is we must ask if this is extraordinary or ordinary. Like, is this a peculiar thing that happened or is this normal? Is this descriptive of this event in this place and time and history and this setting? Or is this prescriptive? This is what we're supposed to now do. Or you could simply just say, is this unusual or is it usual? Is it weird? We first had this conversation together in Acts chapter 5. When a husband and wife lied about what they gave in the offering and God killed them. That's weird. And according to all of the research, American Christians give less than 2% of their income to the Lord. So aren't we glad that that was not usual? 
That's just scary. We're going to look at a text this morning where we're going to need to ask ourselves, is this usual or is this unusual? We're going to find a mixture of both. So grab your Bible, if you would, please, this morning. And uh, to our guests today, we invite you to join with us in a tradition. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together uh, before we jump in. And so uh, we invite you to join with us in that tradition. Let's hold up our Bibles and declare this with some confidence this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter number 19. In case you're keeping math, no, we're not going to be done before New Year's with the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 19. Uh, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you don't have one today. And we're on page number 873 in those Bibles. Acts chapter number 19. Our hope is to cover the first 20 verses of this chapter this morning pausing to reflect on what is usual and what is unusual. Verse number one, it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So if you remember, uh, Paul met Apollos in Ephesus, then he left. Then Apollos met uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Then he eventually went to Corinth. And so they're kind of crossing paths here at this point. Now Paul has gone to where Apollos was. And there he found some disciples. It does not say disciples of who. That's an important distinction. It doesn't say he found some disciples of Jesus. Um, and that's an important distinction for what we're going to read in a minute. That's usual or unusual. Verse number two, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And just in case you're confused, that's not because they were Baptists. What? Wait a second. Okay. So I want to know why he asked them that question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Because if, if someone were to ask me that, I would find that very offensive. As a person who's been a follower of Jesus for a long time, if somebody were like, have you even got the Spirit, bro? I'd be like, listen, you judgmental person. I don't know why he asked. Like, was it obvious? What, was there a powerlessness? What was, were they not living in victory over, over sin in their life? Like, how did he meet these people and ask them this question? I really want to know, but we don't know the answer. Why did he ask them whether or not they received the Holy Spirit? But their answer is interesting. They said, we don't even know what you're talking about. Verse number three, he said, into what then were you baptized? And then we get some context into John's baptism. John the Baptist's baptism. The one who said the Messiah is coming, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like he's, he's close by, right? They were baptized in that baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him And listen to me when I tell you that is the name above every name, the only name that salvation's given, the only name that can heal us and save us and set us free. It's the name above all names, the name of Jesus. In the text, he just goes, Jesus, period. (laughs) But clearly a long conversation happened here, right? That They repented believing the Messiah had come. The Apostle Paul stops and says, man, let me explain who Jesus was. Maybe when it says that these people were disciples, maybe they were disciples of John the Baptist. Maybe they had met John the Baptist. We don't know that John the Baptist ever went to Ephesus. And we don't know that anybody from Ephesus ever went and came and met John the Baptist. But maybe somehow they met John the Baptist. Or it's more likely they had been discipled by Apollos. We met Apollos last week. He was this articulate powerful, influential guy. And he only knew about John's baptism. Now Paul comes back to this territory. I think these are guys that hadn't gotten the memo that Apollos finally graduated into Jesus 101. And so I think that's the best guess we have of who these guys were. Apollos maybe had been baptizing people in the name of John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. But if you remember... Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos speak eloquently 
about the coming Messiah and they heard him out. They listened. They privately took him aside. They helpfully, not not with their agenda, for his good, they helped him by laying out, explaining the ways of God. Their help was God-centered, not self-centered. It was all about him. And Apollos was teachable. And this friendship was formed that was centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore was committed for the long haul. That was the whole sermon from last week. So if you missed it, there you go. Verse 5, on hearing this, the Messiah has come. He's lived a life without sin. He's laid his life down and then he took it up again. He's ascended to the Father. When they heard all of that, they were baptized in that name, the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, probably as he was baptizing them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so for for the next probably two minutes or three minutes, we're going to get a little bit teachy about doctrine because we're not scared or intimidated about doctrine. We think the modern church needs more doctrine. And because we don't talk a lot on Sunday mornings about doctrine, we've got a lot of false doctrine in the American church. And so let's just deal with a couple things in this text, because if we take this text as usual, we can get really confused on our doctrine here. In a couple areas, three areas in particular. Here's what's unusual in this text. A second baptism. That is unusual. Here's how unusual it is. You ready for this? It's the only time ever in the scripture we ever see a person ever being baptized a second time. That's pretty unusual. Here's what is usual. One baptism after salvation. There's been a lot of times people have come to me and they said, Hey, I want to recommit my life to Jesus and I want to get re-baptized. We don't think that's a biblical teaching of Scripture. We believe baptism signifies saving faith in Jesus one time after we are saved. Christian baptism does not look forward to Jesus' first coming. We believe he came. Right? Christian baptism looks back at the fact that Jesus came for us. He lived a sinless life on our behalf. He died in our place. He was buried for our sin. And we believe that he physically, bodily rose from the dead to secure our salvation. And we believe he's coming again. So baptism does look forward to the coming of Jesus. But make no mistake, it's his second coming, not his first coming. Messiah has come. And once we've placed our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the gospel, when we place our faith in that, we display that faith. We demonstrate that faith through baptism. That's a one-time event. Technically, I would submit to you, these men, these 12 men, did not get re-baptized. They got baptized. What happened before that is they got pre-baptized. They did a dress rehearsal. It was a good dress rehearsal. It was about repentance. But to what? They didn't know the rest of the story yet. So that was a pseudo-baptism, right? And so if we take this text as normative or as prescriptive, then every time we have like sin in our life or whatever, we're going to be like, hey, pastor, I need to get baptized again. And there's churches who do that because they've taken this passage to be usual when the reality is it's unusual. Does that make sense? All right, number two, it's unusual that the Holy Spirit would be delayed to come upon a believer. It's usual that the Holy Spirit instantly fills a believer when they place their faith in Jesus Christ. So this idea that they were disciples, but the Apostle Paul baptizes them and all of a sudden they then get the Spirit. Make no mistake, this is not a second filling. This is not a delayed encounter with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe they've given their life to Jesus yet because they had never heard of Jesus. Right? So we don't build a doctrine about, around this about, hey, you need some really godly person to lay hands on you so that you can get the rest of the spirit. Right? And usually in the churches who say that kind of thing, it's actually said pretty condescendingly the way that we just joked about, have you even heard of the Holy Spirit? Because I'm looking at you thinking you need the spirit. Right? So let's not 
make what's unusual usual. One more thing, and then we're going to move on. I know this is a little bit teachy, but it's unusual that everybody in a place, in a group, in a moment would speak in tongues. That's unusual. It's usual that there would be tongues for some people. The Apostle Paul gives the best teaching about the gift of tongues of anyone in the writers of the scriptures. And he teaches it as being a gift on a list of gifts that some people are given some of. Right? By the way, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy are not the same gift. You can have prophetic giftings and not speak in tongues. You can speak in tongues and not have prophetic gifting. They're not the same thing. But we see here that's unusual that all 12 of these believers in one place happen to all speak in tongues and prophesy. And the reason I say that that's unusual is because there's a false teaching in the church that this is the one gift that if you don't have it, you are a lesser than Christian. And I just want to speak on the authority of Scripture. It's unusual that everybody in a place would speak in tongues. Some people actually think it's a gift that doesn't exist anymore, and we can debate about that if we want to, but the reality is, one of the reasons it's easy for us to think tongues doesn't exist as a gift anymore is because often when we see it on TV, it's an abuse of the gift that is unbiblical, and God does not contradict his word. Whether that gift still exists as a private prayer language or whether it exists in extraordinary circumstances, like where the gospel's never been pre-proclaimed, we can talk about that over a cup of coffee. I'd love to talk to you about that. This morning, for the sake of this discussion, I just want to say, if you've never spoken in tongues, you are not a half a Christian. It's not normal that everybody in a place would speak in tongues. Now, let's get back to the text. He entered, Paul entered the synagogue, and for three Months. That's a long sermon. Doesn't mean continually. For three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning. Again, there's that word, right? We've been looking at that word a lot uh, this, this fall. He reasoned with them, persuading them about the kingdom of God. If you remember uh, last week, he visited Ephesus and they begged him to stay longer. He's now returned He's speaking for three months now. He, he visited on his second missionary journey, but man, he's, he's making, making himself at home here. As a matter of fact, he's going to stay here for a total of three years. They're very receptive. He's never had this receptive of an audience before, and that's important to notice, right? He's never had that receptive of an audience. Hang with me, verse 9, but. <laughs> but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way. Remember five times in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus are called the way. I just love that. Like it implies there's movement. I didn't get saved and I'm sitting. No, I just joined the way. We're on a journey together on the way. They spoke evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them. And so the disciples with him, reasoning daily, so it's not just in the Sabbath, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. We're going to circle back and talk about the hall of Tyrannus in a minute. For, for, for this moment, I want us to focus on this, the way. How far did the way travel in this text? You feel me? We're getting out our GPS. We're following the way. How long till our destination? How far are we going? How many miles is this journey? You ready? How far did the way travel? Look at verse 10. It's continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's quite a journey. All the residents of Asia. How far did the way travel? Both Jews and Greeks in all of Asia. That's incredible. The apostle Paul actually wrote a letter to the church at Colossae. Do you know he did not start that church? And from our knowledge, he never even visited that church. But it's in this region, and we believe it was started in this time period. How does that happen? Well, apparently God so produced fruit during these years of teaching in Ephesus that people heard the word of God and were sent out from them and started churches in the area. By the way, the same is true of Laodicea and the church at Thyatira. Those of you who know your Bibles well, all of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, all seven of those churches are in the region of Ephesus and Paul never visited most of them. 
And most of them find their origin story in this moment, this one verse, two years, period. <laughs> like it's this whole summary of this incredibly fruitful thing. Here's why I say that. It is unusual that God would write the Bible to the churches that we help start. That's unusual. Uh, we've had the privilege at Temple Baptist Church for a whole lot of years to be a part of missionary partnerships where churches have been started all over the world. And I don't know of a single church that's had the Bible written to them, addressed to them, and called them by name. That's unusual. Right? Here's what is usual. It is usual that God uses ordinary people to change the world. <laughs> that's what's normal. And we don't even know these people's names. A lot of these churches that got started, that got referenced in the Bible, got letters written to them in their name. We don't even know who helped start those works. That's how awesome that is. That's just God doing what God does. Just ordinary people. I, for some reason this week, um, I haven't thought about this in years. I've just been thinking about, and I, I can't even remember where the thought came from. I'd, I'd tell you what spurred the thought. But I've just been thinking about my name. Like where my name came from. My mom and dad were brand new followers of Jesus. They knew so little of the word. They knew so little of the Christian life. And they bought a new home. Built a home. And across the street from that new home was a godly older couple. Up in years. Douglas and Ruth Baptisti. And what they noticed is. Somebody bought the lot across the street. Somebody's building a house on the lot across the street. Somebody just moved in with two little boys across the street. We should really talk to them about Jesus. They found out that they were new believers and they just started meeting with my parents. Like sitting down at the coffee table with God's word open. And just walking them through the scriptures and pouring into them Jesus. And then my mom gets pregnant and they just knew God was going to answer their prayer and finally give them a daughter. And then I was born. That's a true story. I did not have a name when I was born because they were so convinced God would hear their prayers. My first name was Sarah. That is a true story. It explains so much. It explains why I'm wearing girl pants today. So the, the reality is, I've shared this story before, but um, when I was born, I was very sick. I was... I was a month and a half premature, and they didn't think I was going to live. And my, uh, they took me out of the little incubator and let my mom hold me while I was still warm, so that she could make peace with saying goodbye to me. And this young woman of God prayed over me and said, "God, if you'll let him live, I will raise him to serve you and follow after you." And every time I did anything wrong my whole childhood, she told me that story. <laughs> you didn't clean your room. Don't you know I prayed you into life? <laughs> she never did that. I'm totally kidding. She never, ever said that. When it was time to choose a name, they said, let's name him Douglas. Let's just name him after the ordinary old guy across the street who just sat down and walked through God's word with us and showed us what it looked like in normal life. Let's normalize changing the world for good. Everybody's talking about how the world's changing. Can, can we just talk more about the power of God's people to change the world for good? Do you realize, this is amazing to me, this is why I've been thinking about my name. There's going to come a day... I've never thought of this before until this week. There's going to come a day where some 15-year-old kid who got saved at some summer camp that I preached at is going to meet Douglas Baptisti. And he's going to share an eternal reward for pouring into my parents who raised me to know the Lord. And then God called me to preach. And then I went to some little camp somewhere in the middle of the summer and talked about Jesus. And some little kid came to faith in Jesus. That's, that's changing the world. Nobody's ever heard of Douglas Baptisti. And yet I believe they're gonna, they're gonna before the throne of God see a harvest of people they never met. 
That's changing the world, man. Like our mission statement at Temple Christian School is that we would crank out world changers with the power of the gospel here, not graduate good kids with good grades. That's way too low of a bar. We want to see the world change with the power of the gospel, just disciples making disciples here, there, and everywhere. The Apostle Paul wrote from this moment, like in this two years period, a lot of stuff happened in those two years. One of the things that happened is the book of 1 Corinthians was written during this time. And towards the end of that letter, the Apostle Paul said, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he said, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. I'm going to stay in Pentecost until, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and not but, not even though, and there are many adversaries in a broken world full of broken people. We don't have one without the other. If our life's going to count for being world changers who just make disciples wherever we go, there's always going to be opposition. Like we got to normalize that we're on a mission to see ordinary people change in the world with the power of the gospel. That's not going to happen apart from opposition. That's not going to happen apart from some adversaries. So this effective work, this open door, what does he mean? Maybe part of what he meant is there's this guy named Tyrannus who had this hall who let us use it. Every day for two years. Now, who is Tyrannus? No clue. Which I think is awesome. I think it's great that we don't even have fake stories about this guy. Because, <laughs> you know, church legend has a lot of fake stories. There's not even fake stories about this guy. We don't know. All we know is he had a hall and apparently it was named after him or it belonged to him. I don't know. But that's just so awesome. I was uh, several years ago... Um, I think 2016, if I remember the year right, I was in Uganda with a couple of my best friends uh, preaching and training pastors in refugee camps. The second refugee camp that we we preached in and taught in was right on the border of South Sudan. At the time, it was the second largest refugee camp in the world. Overwhelming. Um, it was it was it's a little sketchy. Um, I ended up during one of the sessions, well, uh, Brian Loveless was teaching. And I was like, I'd rather go into a refugee camp than hear the sound of his voice one more minute. I hopped on the back of a little motorcycle and just said, hey, show me around. I want to see this thing. And then we got detained um, by the military because I did not have my passport on me. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in Uganda. Sketchy day. But anyways... At the end of that day, we went to the home of an incredible missionary couple named Jacob and Carol Lee. They're actually from Texas, uh, Reaching Africa's Unreached is their ministry. We stayed in this beautiful guest house, and next to the guest house is the building that they have named the Hall of Tyrannus. I've got a picture of it here. Um, they, in this beautiful place, in the midst of this uh, warfare and oppression. They have this beautiful place. That that region is entirely Islamic. They invite Muslims to come and use the hall for whatever gathering they would like, as long as they're allowed to participate in the conversation. Not from the front of the room, just as peers. Can can we hang out together? And they are seeing so many people come to faith in Jesus. Just this amazing place. We laid our heads down on our pillows in the building next to that that night and heard gunfire. We're only one mile from the border of South Sudan. In the midst of adversarial danger is this little place where ordinary people are telling other ordinary people about an extraordinary Savior. What if that's a picture of your cubicle? That's what I can't help but think about today. Like, what if that's a picture of your classroom? Got a bunch of teachers in the room. What if we're going to rename your classroom the Hall of Tyrannus? He's the one that the dinosaur was named after. Just seeing if we got it. 
it's, it's unusual that we would help start churches that get the books of the Bible written to them. But it is usual that God uses ordinary people to change the world. i got to speed up. Verse number 11. Oh, verse number 11. So we're looking for what's ordinary and what's extraordinary. And that word just happens to be in this text. God was doing miracles by the hands of Paul. How extraordinary? Even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them from the dude's hanky, y'all. And his apron, which I'm sorry, guys, is biblical evidence that we should be helping in the kitchen. (laughs) Got some... Female amens in the house today. Hold on, though, man. Oh, there's so much back here. Please notice God never wastes a word, and God never says a word incorrectly. God was doing extraordinary miracles. And with the text, it's, it's as important what it does not say as what it does say. It does not say Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. I think some of us today could read a verse that says Paul was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of God. And we go, amen. Time out. That's not how it works. We don't use God's hand. He uses ours. He's the one who works miracles. Paul never came into a a town and said, come to my healing ministry. No, no, no. God is the healer. We're the instrument. We're the vessel on a good day. He is the one who works miracles. Luke does not say Paul was doing extraordinary miracles because Luke was traveling with Paul. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you have gone on vacation with people that you used to be best friends with. And then you went on vacation together. Come on, right? And you're like, oh my word, you're a slob. Right? You're the most disorganized human being I've ever met in my life. I can no longer hang out with you. Luke is traveling with Paul. He's like, no, he ain't working no miracles. This is God. That's how you know two dudes are traveling together. But that's how God works. He is in the business of looking for hands to use to do the extraordinary. So here's what's unusual. God uses handkerchiefs. That's unusual. Here's what's usual. God uses hands. Willing hands. Open hands. Surrendered hands. That's normal. This is another scripture that over the years people have taken this one scripture and they've abused it. This is one of those scriptures where you can see people on TV saying, hey, for the low price of whatever, blah, blah, you just send to my ministry. and I'm going to send you a hanky with a handprint uh, on it where, and you place your hand where my hand was. You're going to be healed of everything for the low price of whatever. And I'm just here to tell you that ain't how this works. First of all, there was no fee for admittance being paid. And secondly, there's not power in the handkerchief. There's power in the God who chooses to use ordinary people. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you. This is the same Apostle Paul talking about. This is the same guy who had to have had his mind straight up blown the first time a healing hanky made its way away from him. Right? You know he went, what? I don't think he was like, that's right, that's my hanky. No. This same Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is spiritual worship. I almost feel like there's a there's a hidden whisper in this. If if God will use me, my hands used to wreak havoc. My hands held the garments of those who murdered the first martyr of the church. And if God will use my hands, just imagine what he'll do with yours. Verse 13. Oh, it's fixing to get good. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. What? There is a group of people who travel around casting out demons. What in the Halloween is happening right now? I just scared some of you, didn't I? Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Notice it's not their Jesus. They're borrowing the name of Jesus to try to cast out demons. And I got to be honest. If Home Slice's hanky can cast out demons, I'm going to borrow that name too. This city here, this Ephesus, is a place full of pagan worship. And I don't mean like in subtle ways. I mean brazen, occultic, demon possession. They were fascinated with evil. And so if I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist, I'm probably going to travel to Ephesus. So who is this? Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. Maybe you've heard him called Skiva. The C is probably supposed to be silent. But whether you call him Siva or Skiva, it's just weird. Skiva sounds more like a disease you get on a ship. But what's interesting, it says he's a high priest, but no, he wasn't. This is super quick. We have record of every high priest from antiquity, like written down. And there's no one named Siva in the historical record. Maybe he was just a regular priest who got really obsessed with exorcisms and then called himself a high priest. I don't know. Maybe he let other people call him a high priest, even though he wasn't. Maybe he's a total hack job. I don't know. I just think that's important because if you remember in Acts chapter 8, we met a magician Remember him, Simon Magus? And he called himself something great. Remember that? There might be a whisper of that here. I don't know. But his seven sons are trying to hijack the name of Jesus for their business. And verse 15. (laughs) But the evil spirit answered them. That can never be good. I've never been a part of an exorcism, but if it's turned into a conversation, it's not going to go well. The spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Oh, my goodness. I don't feel like I can say amen to a demon, but that's good. It says they know the truth, right? They fear and tremble. That's the truth. What an amazing thing God took an executioner of the church and so prolifically used him that demons were like, oh, I recognize that guy. We talk about him at staff meeting. He's on our PowerPoint presentation. I just want to say this. I... um, I wish this wasn't true. If you really are a follower of Jesus and filled with the Spirit of God, the forces of evil recognize you. They do not they do not cheer for you. They are active against you. You don't have to be the apostle Paul for the forces of evil to be opposed to you. As a matter of fact, you might experience a little victory in your life and be like, man, it's like as soon as we were celebrating this victory in Jesus, it's like the rug came out from underneath us. My friends, I'm afraid that's not by accident. It's by design. There's a very real enemy. I'm sorry. And he is actively trying to destroy our marriages. He's actively trying to distract our kids from life. He is on the move. And we're either sleeping through the battle or wishing it weren't true. But make no mistake. The forces of evil recognize the children of God. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? (laughs) And I wish there was the rest of the sentence. And the seven sons of Siva said, "Uh uh-oh. Verse 16, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, seven of them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house 
naked and wounded. I love that it says naked and wounded. If you've been so overpowered that your clothes came off, you're probably wounded. Maybe you've had somebody tell you, I'm going to smack that smirk off your face. I have never had somebody say, I'm going to beat you up so bad your clothes will fall off. (laughs) Right? It's just weird, man. The reality is this. I actually think the word naked is not supposed to be funny or, or even an exaggeration. So these are... Jewish priests, remember? The idea of nakedness in a shame-based culture is all about being shamed. Here's what happened, church, and this is where I want you to hear this, this amazing story. They were exposed. You feel me? They were exposed as counterfeit healers. They were exposed as knockoff deliverers. Okay. I'm going to dial down here. Instead of giving you something that's unusual and something that's usual, I'm going to flip the script right now and give you two things that are usual in this text. Here's what's usual. The culture wants counterfeit healing apart from Jesus. They're going to work hard at it. Compassionately, by the way, If demon possession is prominent, and I'm an exorcist, I want to see people be delivered. I I think their heart was good. The culture desires healing apart from Jesus. But here's what else is usual. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus can heal us. And the culture continues to find a way to hijack the healing of Jesus apart from him. That's always been the case. And we see that. In no greater way than the modern mainstream trends of mental health services today. And I want to be real cautious about the the ground I'm wading into here because I am the farthest thing from anti-mental health services. I just actually think to try to meet that need apart from Jesus is actually more harmful than helpful. Do you know that nine out of ten registered voters in the United States agree on something? In 2022, can we pause on that for for a minute? Nine out of ten Americans actually do agree on something. Is that fascinating to you? I don't think nine out of ten Americans agree that the sky is blue or that the grass is green. But nine out of ten Americans believe that we are in a mental health crisis today in our country. Especially among the younger generation. Nine in ten Americans agree. We agree. The problem is I think the culture wants to plagiarize truth without sourcing the origin. All truth is God's truth. Do you know why AA works? Because it has some biblical truth in it. Not because of the program. The steps are not the secret sauce. The truth that's in the program is the secret sauce. Whether it's given credit or not. Does that make sense? If a therapist who does not believe in God and is opposed to things of God speaks true things to a person, they can be helped because all truth is God's truth. Right? But let's cite the source. Truth comes from the God of all truth. If there's any help and any hope... We need the truth of Jesus for the sake of this next generation. We need to get in counseling. We need to deal with our depression, our anxiety, and our addiction. And we need to do so with the truth of Jesus Christ, with the hope of the resurrection. Real quick, I'm going to unpack this. Culture teaches, this is the modern trend of, of secular therapy. Culture teaches my greatest problem is outside of me. It's happened to me. My problem is my circumstances. It's the things that have happened to me. It's, it's that my boss is a jerk or I married the wrong person or my mom wasn't nurturing enough or my dad was distant. It's, it's what happened to me. My greatest problem is outside of me and the greatest solution 
is found inside of me. So because these problems have happened to me, I need to look within. Help me know me. Feel my feelings. Find my truth. As a matter of fact, we have an entire generation who's been taught their entire life that the key to human flourishing is to look within themselves. And they keep looking within themselves and finding out that they can't save themselves or heal themselves or set themselves free. And the reason that they're dying from the inside out is we have them looking the wrong direction for hope. Because here's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that the greatest problem I have is inside of me. And the greatest solution I can find is outside of me. The greatest problem I will ever face is the sin that's inside of my own heart. Now, I'm going to experience problems outside of me. But my greatest problem is how I respond to those problems. As a matter of fact, for all eternity... I will not give an account or stand before God for the things that have happened to me, only the way I responded to those things. So my greatest problem is not the stuff outside of me that I can't control. My greatest problem is the sin inside of me that causes me to respond and react in broken ways. But the greatest solution I'll ever find is to stop looking within and start looking outside of me, namely to a Savior named Jesus Christ. And when I stop looking to me to save me from me and I look to him, I can finally find the healing that everybody else keeps peddling and promising and can't deliver on. Healing is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. Number one song on Apple Music right now is a song called Antihero by Taylor Swift. She called this song a guided tour of the things I hate about myself. The lyrics in the chorus say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Which just goes to show that I have no idea what my life is going to look like because I just quoted Taylor Swift lyrics in a sermon. G.K. Chesterton tells the story of a newspaper newspaper article that asked readers the question, what's wrong with the world today? People send in these eloquent responses to what's wrong with the world today. G.K. Chesterton sent in this, dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Biggest problem in my world today is not the stuff that happens to me. It's how I'm responding to it. And the culture is always going to look for a hijacked, counterfeit version of healing. And I just don't believe we can find it apart from Jesus. Real quick, and then we're going to be done. I want you to look at the last couple of verses of the text. Verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus. You think? The seven naked sons of Siva are running through the streets. I'm pretty sure people found out about this, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. How could it not? But here's what else happened. The name, that name that they tried to hijack, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Verse 19, a number of those who practice magic arts. Remember, I told you the occult and demonology is widely practiced here. They brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Some of y'all grew up where there was, um, you would burn your, uh, your CDs. You know what I'm talking about? Have a big bonfire. You bring those Led Zeppelin CDs and burn them for Jesus. Right? How many of you ever went to one of those? Come on, it's time for some real talk. I, need, I see too many heads bobbing. How many of you kept some of your favorite CDs at home? You're like, yeah, I'm going to burn the U2 CDs, but I'm keeping Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Unlike... That, that this is actual witchcraft that they burned. 
They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. We'll talk more about this next week. This is where uh, the next time we'll, we'll pick back up at the end of this story. But if those pieces of silver were a denarii, the Greek denarii that you read about in, in the Gospels, one day's wage, if, those, if that was just one day, that's 138 years of income. That is an expensive bonfire. I wasn't willing to give up my boys to men CD, but they are burning their really expensive books here because when Jesus changes your life, your value system changes. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's the last thought. This is another usual and usual. Not unusual. Bonfires are a little unusual, but I didn't put that on the list. Here's what's usual. What's usual is the enemy wants to enslave us. But here's what else is usual. <laughs> Jesus wants to set us free. These people experienced in the person of Jesus, in the name of Jesus... Freedom that they did not even know they wanted. We don't read that any of them were saying, yeah, I'm sick of this witchcraft. No, they just experienced something better. (laughs) They experienced in the name of Jesus freedom that can only be found in his name. I know the beginning of of this text was a little bit academic, and, and that's why I'm glad we're ending here in the text. Is Listen, friends, we are surrounded by a hurting world who doesn't even know how bad they're hurting. And has no idea that we are swimming in the solution. And the question is, are we leveraging our influence to be a mobile hall of Tyrannus? What if the hall of Tyrannus is less like that picture I showed you from Uganda? And it's more like a food truck that just pulls up wherever you do life. And says, hey, I know we're surrounded by pain and bondage. I want to introduce you to the name that is above every name. And it's the name of Jesus.